0: You don't get my body. I, I would I wouldn't dare. You know, when I see what my ancestors have done on these plantations, how they built the entire nation, the entire economic structure. It got me twisted if they think that I am going to be a part of rest and grind culture. <laughs> I'm gonna not embody and respect my ancestors enough to rest for them and to live a life now that's liberated from them. In a lot of ways, it's dedication to them.
1: This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Warning, And this week, we are talking to Trisha Hersey, who calls herself the Knapp Bishop. We are talking about rest as reparations, how deep-seated the forces of capitalism are to make us feel like we have to perform as machines, how laziness is a myth, what happens physiologically when we rest, and whether our movements can really afford to rest when they are building prisons while we sleep. Uh, Quick spoiler, Trisha is not here for that paradigm um, and is definitely running a full-on nap ministry through her work. And a quicker way of saying everything I just said is Trisha is here to school us on rest and sleep and what it has to do with our liberation. So before you hear a little more about Trisha, I just wanted to share with you something exciting that's happening here at the podcast during the month of July, which is that we are working on a public input process from our dear listeners, our friends, the guests that have been involved with this project, our advisory circle, um, our our mentors and elders to rename this project. We talked about this in the opener episode to season two, but we are going to be shifting around our two-year anniversary this November into a new name for the podcast for our growing community online. And there are a lot of reasons for that that we're going to go into depth with uh, maybe in person with a live event in November here in Brooklyn and definitely on a podcast episode for you all when we get closer to that time. But suffice it to say that healing justice is a really important and valuable tradition. It's one that we hope our work supports and amplifies and uh, learns from constantly. Um, And it's also a distinct tradition that we actually want to rematriate the words healing justice to move away from the dangers of appropriation, um, of all of the dynamics that can come up around name sharing or name taking. And to actually stake our claim to a new name that describes, yes, the incredible learning and honor that we have for the healing justice tradition, but also includes more of the conversations that we are also having in this space around strategy, around transformative justice, around race and climate and culture and building resilient movement cultures that include a range of kind of topics and considerations. So, we're looking for this name that's going to encompass the magic of all of those streams of traditions running together. And we really trust that the images and metaphors and beautiful words that might end up composing this name could be hiding in you right now. And so we want to ask for your input to share some words, to share maybe a drawing or an image. And you can find the way to do that on our website at healingjustice.org slash name. So if you go there, there's a form. Every question's optional so you can uh, include your information so we can credit you or get in touch with you. You can do it anonymously. You can literally go to the form and just put the words like uh, water droplets coming together and submit that because that's a quick idea you had or an image that came to mind as it relates to this project. Or you can send a, a fully developed drawing and illustration of what this project means to you. You can um, write poetry, or share whole lists of words. We welcome all of it. So your place to do that is at healingjustice.org name during the month of July 2019. We look forward to getting your input. And so Trisha Hersey, who we're talking to today, is a Chicago native. She lives in Atlanta and has over 20 years of experience working with communities as a teaching artist, community organizer, a spiritual director, a poet, a performance artist, and a theater maker. And she's the founder of the NAP ministry. I bet many of y'all already follow the NAP ministry on Instagram. And it's an organization that examines rest as a form of resistance and installs safe spaces for the community to rest via napping experiences, workshops, and performance art installations. Trisha's research interests include black liberation theology, womanist theology, somatics, cultural trauma, and reparations. And of course, you can follow The Nap Ministry on all social media platforms at The Nap Ministry. So last note before we dive in, We just want to say how much we love all minds and bodies, all people who are listening. And we know that all bodies and minds work differently. And so the goal of this conversation is not to idealize one kind of rest, to say, oh, if you can nap in public, like Trisha talks about, um falling asleep in seminary, or if you can get a solid eight hours of sleep or whatever, that that's like the best kind of rest. And we know that some of us have different sleeping patterns. Some of us have health conditions or trauma histories that make sleep challenging or uncomfortable or sometimes impossible. Some of us live in conditions that shape and limit our access to rest, like it's all well and good to have a conversation about choosing rest, but sometimes there isn't that choice. There's too many responsibilities or multiple jobs, parenting or caretaking responsibilities, the conditions of incarceration or violence or the comfort or discomfort of where you live. So there's a million reasons why rest might be and or feel inaccessible. And we just want to say that we hear you. You'll hear Trisha and I speak from a place of our own experience with sleep and rest, but please do fill in, substitute in whatever kind of rest is accessible to you and beneficial to you. And join us in examining this core concept that the paradigm of capitalism is that it is trying to rob us of our restoration. And so thinking about how we can reclaim the pieces of that that we can in our own communities. All right, y'all, you are in for a treat with the Nap Bishop, so here she is, Trisha Hersey. Hey, Trisha, how you doing?
0: Hey, Kate, how are you? I'm well. I'm so
1: glad you're here.
0: I'm so excited to be here.
1: I am so happy. I've been following your work with the Nap Ministry on Instagram for some time now, and The work is exploding, Um, and I know we're going to get to talk a lot about that, but we'd love to just start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come from?
0: Sure, definitely. So my name is Tricia Hersey, and I am a proud Chicagoan born and raised three generations. My grandmother, both grandmothers came up during the great migration of the 1940s and 50s from Mississippi and Louisiana and my dad was a community activist and preacher and deeply involved in work in Chicago. And so it's kind of like a legacy of my life is that that you have to be serving. And so that's what I've done. So when I got to Atlanta, I started seminary. I went to um, study theology at the Cameron School of Theology at Emory University. Before that, I was a um, puppeteer and a teaching artist. Wait, a puppeteer? I'm a, I am was a puppeteer at the um, Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta. It's one oh of the only gosh. places in North America that studies puppetry. And so, yes, yeah, I went to apply to seminary and they were like, tell us about yourself. I'm like, I'm a puppeteer. They're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you What's like, we really are excited that you want to apply. But what's up with that? I'm like, I'm an artist who wants to come to seminary to study Black liberation theology and womanism, and I want to ground my work Mm. in some theories. And so Mm. um, my dad was a preacher my whole life. I was raised in the Black Pentecostal largest um, denomination, Church of God in Christ. Really watched Black liberation theology in action and watched Black people embody the Bible as the liberation tool and the community as a place of healing. And so... I just got a calling. Like I was going to come to Atlanta with my husband, and I was like, I'll just go to graduate school. I always wanted to go to graduate school, and so I landed on Emory's page, looking at the creative writing program, and then I went to the theology program. I just looked at every school that they had, and the School of Theology. I literally never really even knew what theology was. You know, my dad was a pastor and minister, but he never he went to high school, and that was it. He was a like most black preachers in black denominations, there isn't a lot of education. Theological education is basically you get a calling. God called you to do the work and you go do the work. And so that's what my dad did. Even though he was a amazing biblical scholar, on his own right, he just never, he only could afford to finish high school. And then he started working at the railroad. So he worked at the railroad and was a pastor and worked in the community. And so... I'm like, what is theology? And what's this about? And, you know, Mm -hmm. so I just, it just really resonated with me. I love the whole concept of black liberation theology. I love James Cone. Mm -hmm. I was reading all this work just because I'm interested and I love to read. And so I said, I'll just apply here. You know, I just was like, will I get in? Could I afford it? I was like, I'm just going to take a leap of faith. And I just applied, not thinking I would ever get in. And I got accepted. And so that's kind of like what I've been doing since I've been in Atlanta. I finished the program and the NAP ministry kind of started there, the whole idea of it. Mm-hmm. And what, what is the foundation, what is like the need that you
1: saw or felt in your own body around how deeply important mm-hmm. it was to do an intervention around rest?
0: I always like to um, lead with the NAP ministry is not a religion. The NAP ministry is not based on any religion, it is a spiritual and political movement. It is not in any way. I've used themes from theological education, but it really is um, used to kind of ground the work and give it a framework and point of view. So I took all of the concepts of Black church worship. If you've ever been to Black church, you know, the worship in a Black church is embodied. It's Mm -hmm. singing, it's dance, it's performative. And so I took the concepts of learning um, around Black church worship. And I embedded them into this performance um, called the NAP ministry. So the NAP ministry started as a performance art piece. Me being a performance artist, I was researching reparations theory, Black liberation theology, and womanist theology, and also cultural trauma. Those were the main um, things that I was studying in seminary. Those were what I really was jazzed about, what I couldn't stay away from. And so I became really obsessed with the stories of my ancestors. I, I became really um, obsessed with learning about the everyday micro history that they were going through. What was it like on the plantation? Like I knew, we know what, what went down. We know slavery, we've heard the narrative through American history, but I became, I wanted to know about the personal story. So I started reading slave narratives. I started re- researching my own family. I started looking at pictures of plantations visiting land and just started to really read anything i could get my hands on that was like a first person account so i started reading this book called slave narratives by john blassingame and in the book i was it was just like they were talking about all these details and so i wanted details and the details were they were working for 20 hours a day women were pregnant and giving birth in the fields mm-hmm. They would give birth. The midwife would come take the baby and then they would continue. They have 500 pounds of cotton to um, pick. That was their daily rate rate that they needed to pick. If they didn't pick that enough of that, it would be problems. It would be violence. And so I wanted to know, what does 500 pounds of cotton look like? And so I was able to figure that out and see it and then think about, man, how hot does it get in the South? You know, like in the summer, like how hot must it have been? Like, did they stop for lunch breaks? Like I just wanted like the micro history that no one talks about what happened if they didn't pick at a certain time when the sun started going down, Mm -hmm. if they worked 20 hours a day, how did they light their path? Were they, could they see the cotton? What did the cotton feel like? So I just became obsessed with these stories. And what came about is that they were human machines and Mm -hmm. 20 hours a day of work. And this was done for centuries. And I'm like, Thinking about somatics and embodiment of our bo- you know, our bodies and DNA and thinking about my own grandparents who were sharecroppers and looking at photos. And I just was like, hmm. I have to rest for them. You know, I was I was in school and I was exhausted. I was going through so much being in the theological program. The pace was really the pace was like nothing I ever experienced. It was very traumatic. Um, Black Lives Matter was like heating up at the moment when I was in school, I started in 2013. So all the Black Lives Matter stuff was really coming to a a, a peak. Um, I was robbed while I was there. Two of my family members died suddenly while I was in. So I was like in seminary going through this like
1: mm-hmm.
0: really journey of like trauma. It was like, so I just started sleeping everywhere around campus. So at the same time I'm on campus and all this is happening. I'm just coming to school and I'm just taking naps. Like I'm not really, <laughs> I'm not really engaged that much in the work. Like this is, it's a three year, three and a half year program. And so I started to want to understand biologically what was happening. And so I started to figure out that when you sleep and when you rest, your brain is downloading all this new information. Mm. It's um, helping you with creativity. It's actually um, helping you to learn new things. So I was learning all this new knowledge that I had never heard of. And so I just started to be more empowered, and so it just became this joke around campus. Like all my friends would be like, "Where are you about to go?" I'm like, "I'm about to go lay down and it's nap ministry time," you know. <laughs> <They're> like, okay, <laughs> it's nap ministry time. Like, I'll see you at three. We'll come back to class, and so I just started to play around with um this persona of a nap bishop, mm-hmm. kind of a nat nap minister, and so I just I just do a show. I do a one woman show. I will let everybody know about my findings in the archives. I'll be multimedia. I'll show um, archival film. I'll show archival um, photos of cotton fields and ancestors on the land. I'll have an altar. I'll write a whole piece around um, looking at the commodification of black bodies. I'll just like present my work Mm -hmm. in this Nat Ministry um, persona. So it was just this whole one-woman show I did called Transfiguration, a performance. And I did it May 27, 2017. And it was a lot of people there and people were crying. Like it was people of all races there, black and white. And it was like this older white gentleman who got up in the middle of my piece and he was out in the hallway weeping because he had never seen anything like this. He had never felt the concept. He didn't know these stories and he was from the South. And so he just was so moved by it. And so the community activist brain started to blend with the performance artist brain. I was like, okay, so we did the performance piece. What about if next charity, we just do a collective nap and people just come and lay down? Because <laughs> like, that's all I was talking about in the piece. Like in the piece, I actually lay on a bed for most of the um, performance. I'm reading from the archives. I'm reading slave narratives lay, laying on a bed hmm. surrounded by cotton. And so it was really, I picked cotton for 10 minutes, like real raw cotton that I got from a farmer. I so it's this um beautiful performance piece that kind of one woman show that kind of looks at what cotton and plantation labor did to us on a spiritual level and what we can do now to embody and how rest can be a form of reparations. It was really ancestor communication and ancestor reverence. I was really wanting to communicate and give reverence to my ancestors for never resting. And so I was like, I'll rest for you. I, I believe that we could be resurrected together in our dream. I believe if I was going to this nap space, this healing portal. I, you know, I was very influenced by Afrofuturism. And so I really saw rest and napping as a portal for healing that we can go into, communicate with ancestors, get a word from the creator, reclaim, reimagine, reclaim our dream space. And so that's what the whole piece was about. But I'm like, let's do this for real, like, and so I had a collective napping experience, and 40 people came, I was the first one, probably knew maybe 10 of them, the rest were just people who heard about it, because it got, it got picked up in a local paper here, um, and was recommended in Creative Loafing for people to come out, so 40, people were just walking in, they were, I never really thought people would come and rest with me, that's the thing, I was like, rest is kind of a vulnerable place. People don't know me. They're not going to come to a space and lay down on blankets. Mm-hmm. Who, who am I? This is kind of like a vulnerable place to be. So I never really thought that many people would come. It was just an experiment. And so people were coming to the door and they were like, hi, um, I saw your, this in the paper. Where can I lay down? Like they wouldn't even, it wasn't even like they were like talking to me. They were just like, where can I go to lay down? It was just, <laughs> they would. It was just like this, this maddening face of like I heard I can lay down here where can I go and I'm like wow. yes you can take off your shoes I had my nap ministers there the ushers lead you to a little yoga a little area of a yoga mat we have pillows we have blankets we have you know art directed this beautiful space and so there's a lot of art direction and building of altars and building a sacred space so it's hands-on site um installation it's on-site installation of this you know curated space, and so people were laying down and it was for three hours and people were sleeping for two hours, a four hour in and out people were come um this beautiful couple came and they cuddled up with each other and like um slept in like a little spooning position. We had <laughs> music playing like we curated this healing sound with We had this huge altar that we built it was like um really tall, maybe. Fifteen feet tall. It was just a huge um, altar that we built with water and cotton and photos of archives, and just people can just sit and come and like lay their burdens down and like really connect with rest. The lights were dim. We had a healing bar of teas that my friend crafted for us that people can sip that hit the central nervous system and kind of help people rest. And I just looked at it and was like, okay. I, you know, I really was experimenting as an artist, as a scholar, as a um community art worker to say, could this work? Could we connect people in a radical way around rest? Mm-hmm. People need to rest. You know, this is a spiritual practice. This is like real, like community work. And so I started to think about it, you know, with the resistance piece and the reparations piece, and how it disrupts capitalism. It disrupts white supremacy. And so I started there and I was like, this has some legs to it. People were like, when are you having the next one? When is the next one? I'm like, I felt like okay, so maybe this can be something. so for our
1: listeners who are tuning in and are organizers and activists and are thinking Mm -hmm. like, this all sounds so beautiful and amazing and artistic and all of the things. And like, what on earth does this have to do with movement building? Mm -hmm. Um, I want to hear a little bit more from you around the political formation. Like I feel really moved by this like reading the stories of slavery through the archives and I've heard you say that rest is an interruption to white supremacy and, and mm-hmm. capitalism but can you break down for us more about why mm-hmm. and like where do these narratives come from that are very internalized I think pretty universally at this point that rest right. is to be suspected or <laughs> demonized right like uh, yeah
0: can you break down those politics for us a little bit? Definitely, I think um, white supremacy is the engine that drives it all. And so I'm really looking at white supremacy parallel to capitalism and how they're both, you know they support each other. And so when we think about white supremacy, we know that white supremacy has been commodifying bodies for centuries and um, think, you know, tracing that back to slavery and for you know people who were enslaved white supremacy is a theory that says you're not your body doesn't belong to you you're um you're not a full human being you know and so it really wants to commodify your you for its own production which jumps right to capitalism and capitalism is um toxic to me and I believe that it comes out of white supremacy it comes out of slavery and it looks at human beings as machines it doesn't look at anything from an ethical moral value place it looks at how can we use this being to push our agenda to um become a tool for our production and so production becomes the end result no matter how it happens if we have to have children you know working 20 hours a day let's do it if we have to have you know not pay people um what they're worth let's do it if we only have people working? You know, minimum wage. Don't care. People are sick. Still come to work. It doesn't. So capitalism does not have a framework for looking at us as human beings. It, we are our machines, and so the disruption comes by saying capitalism keeps saying go faster, speed up more and more and more. And we, and by disrupting, we say we're going to go slower. We're going to hmm. take back our bodies. We're we are going to disrupt and kind of push back against the narrative that our bodies don't belong to us, that they are a machine for your production. And so I think um, those two disruptions are really what, I'm I'm trying to disrupt those two things by just saying, we're gonna lay down. I know you want us to work 20 hours a day. I know you would love for us to never take our vacation time. You Mm -hmm. would love us to see exhaustion as production. People love for us to be sick. The medical industry will love. We're worth more to them sick, you know. And so, mm-hmm. work work like an animal. If you if you get sick, don't go to the doctor. Hmm. If you get sick and you afford to go to the doctor, <laughs> you know, like so, it doesn't matter. Like I remember working at jobs, and I was like sick to my stomach, throwing up, and they're like, I'm in the bathroom throwing up. I'm like, okay, are you going to get back to your dad? It's just, like, you know, like every this whole system of how we've thought about making money and surviving and living in corporations and um, in this capitalist system, all driven towards, it doesn't matter who you are, what you feel. We want to make the penny off of you. Mm-hmm. One more penny we can push out of you, a half a penny we can get from you. And so we, in that way, we, um, our humanity is taken and in that way we're not looked at as a human being. And we buy into it, and so when you have people who've been raised in a society since they were born, the school system start you with that the school the way the school, public school systems are ran where you work you eight to four, the children never get up, they sit down at desks, like the education system supports it all, your job supports it all, academia supports it all So everything in our society supports this notion to get you ready to be that tool, to get you ready to be that machine. And so that's why it's so easy for people, once they've lived here their whole lives, to be, you know, 30, 40 years old and being like, I never nap. I feel so guilty. Like, I literally feel extreme guilt and sickness when I rest. I feel so much shame. People email me all the time. Like, I'm sick today. I went in late. I, I laid down for two hours because my body just wouldn't go anymore. And I woke up and I feel guilt for the rest of the day. Like mm-hmm. it's a psychological brainwashing that has happened. So I think the number one thing is trying to name it. I think naming is very important.
1: Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a personal reclaim around mm-hmm. claiming rest and saying, I'm not going to feed my body into the, cap- the capitalist machine. Um, but given that corporations and politicians and people who are burning through our natural resources and, ex- mm-hmm. and exploiting people are willing to do that. They are willing to drive people into the ground. They are okay. willing to see people as expendable, um, for the sake of production. Where then does that put our movements? Because there is mm-hmm. some, there is actual consequence to slowing down. Like, it's not just that we're all, like, we're all just drinking the Mm Kool-Aid. Like, there is a consequence to slowing down because when one side isn't willing to slow down and the other Mm -hmm. one is, it's like, they they do things while we're sleeping. You know what I mean? They literally do things while we're sleeping. So, Mm -hmm. um... So, yeah, how do you think about it uh, as it pertains to movement space? And I think many activists who would be like, yeah, well, as long as they're going that fast, we have to go double fast with half as much because we're trying to stop an impossible machine.
0: Yeah, I think that's a myth. And I think this is when you start to talk about the spiritual practices of movement work. I mean, Black Lives Matter is built off this entire concept. Like, There is a spiritual dimension and a spiritual reality to movement work. And when I say that, I mean, you want the, the man, quote unquote, is working 80 hours a week. So that means we got to do 100. No, we don't. I feel like when I start talking about the ancestral communication and the concept of the spiritual understanding of there is work that is being done behind the scenes on our benefit that we don't even see right now because we can't see it because we're caught up in this system. We're caught up in the Grind. We're like jumping on the hustle. We have activists and movement workers who are having brain aneurysms and dying from mental health issues because they're working eighty, hundred hours, are never resting and never sleeping. So it's not working mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it's obviously not working, and you can't dismantle the masters. You know, the master's house with their own tools. That's a quote by, um, I believe, it's Audre Lorde, mm-hmm. and so. Um, we have to totally disrupt and really get our minds around the concept of productivity and what it looks like to, be a, to do a movement. A movement looks so many different ways from a spiritual dimension. If we know that, at least Black people in America, know that for 500 years, our ancestors survived, thrived, had body wisdom, we're able to live, so the point that we're here, we're able to create institutions that are still here now. You know, when we think about Harriet Tubman and others, you know, of our movement people back then, they did work. If we don't believe that that work still exists for us to tap into, then where, what are we really doing? You know what I mean? Like, we have to be able to look at the spiritual dimension of what it means to be in movement, what it means to... um make change. The work that we're doing now is already fortified by our ancestors, and I truly, truly believe that. (laughs) You know, it's like, yes, we have to be working as hard as them, but we have to just be working smarter. We have to be looking at what tapping into the energy and the power that we have from our ancestors, from the spiritual plane, from the spiritual dimension of there's always work being done behind the scenes. And so what does it benefit us? To work ourselves into a frenzy as movement people to end up bad, yeah, <laughs> to end up sick, to end up not healthy, to end up not taking care of our children because we're right. always, you know, doing movement work. To so not like, how is that community? I actually think that's actually um, violence. The opposite of care is violence. And so are we ourselves operating from a place of being violent towards ourselves? Are we operating from a place of not looking at our soul care and how once our soul care and our bodies and our spirits are fortified, we can do work in a better way. We can do work in a way that's more powerful. You know, we can do work in a way that's more conducive. And so I think about this kind of being a metaphysical work. And I think a lot of that I'm inspired by Martin Luther King and Kingian Nonviolence and that theory, which is a really metaphysical movement. It's a movement that says, there is things happening for us and with us that are out of our hands. So mm-hmm. we can do all the spreadsheets. We can make all of the documents. Mm-hmm. We can stay up 10 hours, planning a direct action. We can have these meetings that go on for 20 hours and we can never take a day off for six months. But I feel like that's not, really honoring the work that's already been done for us. And it's not tapping into the spiritual and metaphysical power that we have as a collective.
1: Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. And I think that, um, like, even for those who are maybe, like, thinking twice about the metaphysical piece, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. in addition to that, I also just... I. I don't know if it's part of getting older or that I get to have these conversations about healing with people all the time. But like I also just think there's like a um, very like American exceptionalist kind of like um, endless work culture sort of like valiant Mm -hmm. narrative that – is actually just fundamentally wrong, not even just in the metaphysical, but in the physical physical. Like like imagining that if you keep working and rest less, like one less hour of sleep or mental break equals Mm -hmm. one more hour of productivity is not actually the right equation.
0: It's not true. And it's, it's false. It's Biologically, it's false. Um, on all levels, Is false. It's, we've been fed this false narrative. We've been fed a lie. We've been scammed. <laughs> mm-hmm. We've been bamboozled to think productivity looks like exhaustion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Productivity is... Rest is productive. When we know what happens biologically, spiritually, physically when we rest, if you could read the science of sleep and see, and see what happens when you actually are in a rest state, in a sleep state biologically so much, so many things are happening to our brain mm-hmm. that are going to help fortify us for the movement. How can you be an efficient movement worker if your brain is not working at the full capacity that it could? You know, yeah. If your body is not working at the full, I mean, this is not just physical work. This is intellectual work. This is work that we have to think and strategize about and, we, and our brains need to be at their highest potential. And that cannot happen when you haven't slept all day and when you've been working yourself into a hole for the last six months. And so I was reading this book called Why We Sleep by a neuroscientist. Um, his name is Matthew Walker. And mm-hmm. He talks about when the brain um, is in a rest state, that it actually produces a chemical that bathes your brain um, and it helps you forget trauma, mm-hmm. not just heal from a trauma, but it actually helps you forget the trauma. And so I was taking a class in cultural trauma and memory and thinking about man, that really could help people who've, you know, had centuries of trauma and centuries of violence that has happened to them. And now we're at the point now in our current contemporary movements where we're carrying all of that. We talk about the wisdom of our DNA and also what's happening for our DNA and what's been passed on to us. We are the ones who need to be resting the most. I think that when we tap into that and we're able to heal from our, trauma and we're able to forget trauma, that's gonna trauma is to us all the time when we're working in movements, when we're out putting our lives on the line at, at protests and at you know marches. And we really need to tap into the um power of what our bodies want to do for us. You know, if you just want to go biological and scientific, mm-hmm. the science of sleep tells us that sleep is productive. Capitalism and white supremacy has tricked you and told you that it's lazy (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's like who are we going to believe you know are we going to believe something that's ancient and divine or are we going to believe something that's new and toxic uh, from a history of violence like Mm -hmm. which one do we want to be a part of which one do we want to believe so it's you're really going to have to make a choice like with this whole resting and thinking about rest as resistance it's a understand it's a full counter narrative it's a full understanding of breathing a new way of looking at the world but that's what movement work is you know movement is imagining something that isn't here right now it's imagining a new way Mm -hmm.
1: yeah that's the that's when I think about all the resources that are up against us that's the piece like we actually won't be able to produce more. Mm-hmm. But if we can imagine more fully, if we can be more precise in our visioning, if we can yeah. be more yeah. magnetic so that more and more people want to join, like I think it was yes. Adrian Marie Brown that I heard talking about like Yeah, like we're all out here, like looking, like super raggedy, miserable, exhausted, sick, unhealthy. Like, and we're like, "Hey, come join our thing," you know. (laughs) And people are like, "No,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I see you. (laughs) Like, you're not raggedy right now, right? You're not embodying anything that looks liberative. You know what I mean? You look, you look like you're oppressing. (laughs) You look like the oppressor. Yeah, Yeah, definitely."
1: Hey everybody, it's Kate. I just wanted to pop in to let you know that our book club is alive and well. We are currently reading Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown and the discussion is juicy. Our community in our Patreon is uh, finding one another locally and meeting up on a blanket down by the river in the basement of a bookstore um, at people's homes around kitchen tables and in living rooms and finding each other and it's so sweet and amazing to watch for those who actually don't want to convene in a physical in-person book club it's i'm an organizer i can relate to being like you know what i go to enough meetings i convene enough meetings i just want to read this damn book and enjoy it for myself if that's you you can also do that you can follow along via the um book club discussion guide that we released for our patrons just a couple weeks ago Um, you can lead conversation with other people using that or you can just read it and reflect for yourself and we're going to have this amazing webinar this virtual hangout with adrian and two of the contributors from the book amita swadheen and monique tula coming up in early august so Come and join us for book club, and that's the way you'll get invited to that online forum where we'll get to ask our own juicy questions to Adrian, Monique, and Amita. Um, And also in August, we'll be announcing our next book selection, which we're polling to have people vote for um, in the Patreon right now. So if you wanna be part of any or all of that, you can go to patreon.com slash healingjustice. And if you join at a level of $10 a month for book club or any level above that also includes book club, we have a practitioner's level called reciprocity. We have a redistribution level where we give a portion of the proceeds uh, or the portion of the money raised to frontline healing justice organizations that are less visible and less resourced than we are. And we also have a a major donor circle level if you join at any of those levels, $10 and up, you'll get access to Book Club, and it would be so much fun to have you in that space. So go to patreon.com slash healingjustice, come read with us, and now we'll go back to the conversation with Trisha. There's also like a, as the reason why I bring up my own age is because I think like, so there was this thing that my organ- my first organizing mentor used to say to me, which is, um, Kate, you can do the work of two people. Mm. And I remember, like, that to me was such a high compliment. Yeah. And it wasn't until years later that I realized, like, how deeply that compliment tapped into, like, what I believe, especially as, like, a white woman from a middle class background, like, coming into movement work, mm-hmm. like... Deep down, I really believe like my – what makes – my only hope at being okay, my only hope at like not being a waste of space on this planet is if I can just work myself into the ground in the service of liberation. Mm. Like that is my only redemption. Right. And the truth is that the fruits of working in that way were that like I was so stressed out Mm. that – it was hard for me to access complexity. It was hard for me to really feel people. Yep. It was hard for me to be non-defensive so and good. receptive and listen and grow because yep. I couldn't handle feedback because I was so tired That's and I had sacrificed so much that like any kind of pushback felt triggering, yeah, and felt like attack because like my guard was up all the time. Like mm-hmm. my body actually was like not supported to be in a place where I could be, a good, listening, adaptive, creative, supportive, attuned worker for liberation. And like I think about that compliment and then I think about like um, a lot of my organizing community is is still in their 20s. And and, um, some of my friends, I've heard them make comments like, oh, I used to be able – to work so hard and like now mm. I have to sleep like seven hours a night. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. And like and like I used to be. I, I used to give I so much all night. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, but like I also knew you when you were doing that, and like you were a maniac. You were a like,
0: yes. If you would,
1: <laughs> if you would keep that up for years and years, like there's this fallacy that we create that like. By cutting time on like rest or health or like relation like repairing conflict, by cutting time on the front end, we think that's not going to come back and bite us exactly. in the back end. Yeah, and I'm like, for my friend who's like, I have to sleep seven hours a night. I'm like, literally, you were on a path to a certain certain chronic illness.
0: Absolutely, it, if you would have kept even up talk that about pace. the illness yet, like what I've spoken, set with um organizers. I did a strategy session at the um. Um, human rights organizing convention that was here in Atlanta. Um, And I did, and it was all organizers and activists there. And the entire session was people in tears and people crying. And some of the elder activists are pleading with them, like, please rest. I have a brain aneurysm. I'm sick right now. People couldn't even speak. People were like, yes, I'm dealt with breast cancer. And I was even you know, during my chemotherapy, I should have been laying down and I was planning direct actions and now I'm sicker. You know, just like, it was like a group of 20 people who were just, they couldn't even speak because they were just so exhausted. Their souls are exhausted. You know what I mean? It's like, yes, you're doing the work. Yes, you're running these organizations. Yes, you're go, 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 go. But when it's time to connect, someone asks you, how are you doing? And what do you think? And and as soon as they speak, they just start crying. When you tap into that spiritual soul place, they're not well. And do we want our leaders to not be well? (laughs) Do we want our movement, people who are leading us into the new realm of liberation to not be well? And I say, Mm no, you know, I don't. Like I think wellness and being healthy and being liberated also looks like being well. And so Mm -hmm. it's just... It's just fascinating to me that we've been able to carry it with you know, not see like the concept of yes, rest is also a part of the movement. It has to be a framework for movement from day one. It has to be a framework for the movement and organizing and a strategy session. It can't be something that comes after the executive director has had a heart attack or after this person has mm-hmm. to go on leave because they Mental. Um, they had a mental break, or they their mm-hmm. children want to know where they are because they're never home. Like, mm-hmm. isn't part of the movement work raising liberated, healthy children and being there and connected with them? We don't have to. We've been taught that in order to move forward, we have to suffer, and that is language and something that's been taught to us by the oppressor. You don't mm-hmm. get my body. I, I would, I wouldn't dare. You know, when I see what my ancestors have done on these plantations, how they built the entire nation, the entire economic structure, it got me twisted. If they think that I am going to be a part of rest and grind culture, that <laughs> I'm going to not yeah. embody yeah. and respect my ancestors enough to rest for them and to live a life now that's liberated from them. In a lot of ways, it's dedication to them. I, I don't I'm not going to go there like you. Capitalism can have my body. White supremacy can I have my body? It's a reclaiming and a, that's why it's a resistance movement.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, one question that I have is that something that actually comes up on this podcast somewhat frequently, which makes sense to me because it comes up in movement space, yeah. is um, is like there's a lot of different – there's a lot of folks of different identities listening, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's people who have experienced multiple different kinds of marginalization yeah. and share histories, um, you know, of enslavement mm-hmm. or – Poverty, um, like what you're describing. um, And there's a lot of people listening who are like, oh, my gosh, I feel this so hard. But like I, you know, my ancestors weren't enslaved right. or like um, I have like a degree of mm-hmm. class privilege. Mm-hmm. Like who is the rest gospel
0: for? I'm so glad you mentioned this because this this has been the education I've been doing on my page since I started. And this is the scam and the gag. <laughs> this is cap. This is for everyone because capitalism is a global movement. And the scam and the gag is that you think you haven't been affected by it. And I, this is a perfect story. I was brought into a Google conference in Chicago where I was probably one of the only people of color there. It was all white male tech people who probably make six figures and up. I did a small little Ignite talk. It's similar to a TED talk or a Google talk to a group of 300 of them on rest as resistance, on capitalism, on the whole concept of reclaiming our dream space and reclaiming the space to to rest and sleep deprivation. And I'm like, how is this going to land here? You know, it was like my first time really speaking in public about the MAP ministry. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I'll just do it in, with 300, (laughs) let's see how this will go, you know? And so here I am with my slides and my information and they gave a standing ovation and came up to me in tears. They were like, I literally live here. I never rest. Like I never take a nap. They're human machines as well. Capitalism does not care if you're rich. Or you're poor capitalism looks at human beings as machines period it doesn't matter rich, poor black white whatever and so and also I also want people to understand that white supremacy affects everyone um a lot of white people have come to me and say man you know you got black people who are enslaved here in americas and My parents, we weren't enslaved. We probably actually owned slaves. But Martin Luther King talks about this a lot in some of his later writings in the spiritual deficiency that white people suffer from. And so you suffer as well because white supremacy has tricked you and scammed you into believing that someone's color defines whether or not they are a human being. It's tricked you into hating. It's tricked you into thinking that you're better than another person because of your color. It's giving you the opportunity to embody hate, which is a spiritual issue, which is a spiritual deficiency. Like, you really have um, a lot of, you, you can't really con- get concept around empathy and love. And I feel like, are you really a full you know, functioning ethical person if you can't really look at that. And so, yeah, white supremacy has not effect, white people, the way it's affected my ancestors, but you better believe it's affect you from a spiritual place. And because I am coming from, a lot of my work is based in spirituality and I see it all connected. I see politics connected with spirituality. This isn't a new concept. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about this constantly in all of his writings and all of his work that the spiritual deficiency of white people, what what um, what has had to be in you to allow you to go to a lynching and bring mm-hmm. picnics? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what's mm-hmm. in your soul mm-hmm. that allowed mm-hmm. you to go to a lynching and take your children and bring sandwiches there? The photos mm-hmm. of lynchings in the South. What What's mm-hmm. in you to put on a Ku Klux Klan mask? Where have you got to be on the level of, of who you are as a human to think that that's okay and to participate yeah. in that i used to see pictures of lynchings and when i was studying cultural trauma and jim crow and all of these different things happening in the south and people would be smiling with their babies there with bodies hanging from trees who are we that who mm-hmm. that same energy when we say the dna has been passed all the oppression has been passed to my, from my ancestors yeah do you not think that that same energy yeah. has not been passed on to you Did you act for that you know what I'm saying like yeah. it's embodied now in you and so that's kind of like stop you from being a full reaching your full potential it stopped you from in a lot of ways spiritually self-developing self-actualizing to your full place in life and so when I think about connections I think about a womanist framework because a womanist framework is super intersectional it's super interconnected it says no one is free until black people are free, until black women are free, you know, and so no one. And so it looks at a lens, and black liberation as a theology looks at a lens of the people who are marginalized, the people who are the least in the society. Until they're together, you're not together. And so the scam of white supremacy and capitalism makes you think, oh, those poor, little, oppressed, marginalized people, but we're good. No, you're not good. <laughs> you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're really messed up when you think about the lineage of the violence that's um, inside of you. When you mm-hmm. think of the lineage of what you've been able to um, accomplish on the backs of people. When you think about the spiritual work that you have to do to heal from that, to atone to redeem, to give reparations. to um, So I love to break that down because that's been the scam going on so much with people is that white people have this, and it's not white people's fault. It's the fault of the way white supremacy as a global movement works. It's made people, it's made race be this thing where, oh, you have this and I don't have that. But the full system of white supremacy um It scams us all. It scams us in different ways. And so I have had people who are white and rich in tears saying, I literally, if I stop working today, I'll lose all of this. Capitalism and all of that works in really unique, strange ways. And so we have to open up our minds around how it's affecting us, how we participate in it, how we've lived under it. And how it affects us in different ways.
1: Mm. That part about participating in it feels particularly salient to me because I think, because this conversation came up also around pleasure activism. Yes. Um, our episode from a little while ago, mm-hmm. we're also doing a pleasure activism book club right now nice. that folks can find in the show notes. And um, this conversation comes up around pleasure, right? And rest is pleasure. Absolutely. pleasurable that's the word um and I think that there's I think that this whole this whole framework of like you know I'm giving an example as a white person but it could be for whatever reason under the sun I'm able-bodied I'm young there's people counting on me I have light skin privilege I have, Mm. you know have economic privilege whatever I'm cisgendered like right everybody can find some qualifier for themselves as to why maybe they don't deserve Mm -hmm. pleasure or rest and like I think that that framework to say like well that's for other people Mm. who have it worse than me and only they get that like is still accepting the assumption that the ultimate good or the ultimate accomplishment is to blast through or that somehow we have right. somehow we'll contribute more to society if we don't have pleasure or rest and that that's our duty. Right. And it's we're not getting underneath it to yeah. actually say like let's confront this belief like you're still dealing with yeah. the underlying belief yeah. that if you're more stressed out working harder not connected to pleasure like if you're not connected to a personal embodied experience of liberation somehow you're going to be more of service. Yeah.
0: And, it, and that's just not how it works. So true, yeah, totally. Not, I like what you said, we're not getting under it. Yeah, no. we're not really, uh, yeah, we're not getting under it at all. We're not addressing it from these really deeply rooted places. We're just kind of on surface with it. And that's what I think. I actually think that napping and rest provides you the energy to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you sleep and you rest, you wake up and you can just you can make connections between things, but you can work things out. Things just are clearer. You're at your full capacity to really be able to embody messages that are there for you. Like sleep is a portal to kind of go and invent and imagine and like heal and embody pleasure and to really you know get a word from from the creator to get a word from an ancestor to really work through some things, and so. Without that, what where does that leave us, you know? Mm-hmm. I've Something that I love about
1: your work is that it's collective. Yes. And I think I'm seeing more and more in organizing community people beginning to accept that we need to take vacation time, yes. that... I see people taking sabbaticals, mm-hmm. right? I see people taking um, a couple weeks off or a month off yep. or a few months off. I see people going out to places like, you know, Rockwood Leadership or other, mm-hmm. p- other movement institutions that support people, Win Call Institute that support people through like sabbatical reflection period. I love it. Um, but I also see people take that time, like go way beyond when the moment where they just actually have to take the time. Okay. Then go and do it and come back and pretty soon after feel in the same place where they were before. Yeah. And I'm I'm feeling agitated around like what is the movement level solution for right. actual rest and restorative time? Because basically, like when I see people take it, they're going off on their own to take it and yeah. they're disconnecting from their community. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I just want to hear from you, like what do you think is the collective or community responsibility around Mm -hmm. a a deep rest that like time off doesn't always equal rest?
0: Yeah, I really think it goes to sustainability and looking at a consistent practice that does not come as a reaction to burnout. Like I keep telling um, movement workers and people who are leading organizing um, initiatives this cannot be the it, the when the afterthought when you're sitting down creating strategy when you're sitting down creating frameworks for how you're gonna move and do something, rest um, time off the pace of how you're working has to be a part of it from the beginning. So that has to look like some change happening at the organizational level. It has to look at some change happening the way we build our calendars out, <laughs> the way we return emails. You know, we almost, It's like a retraining that has to happen on the pace that we're working at. And it has to be part of um, strategies. So if you're an executive director of an organization, or if you're starting your own organization, like for myself within that ministry, I have really strict frameworks for how I work and for people who work with me. And so um, I will not take phone calls after a certain time. I do not do back-to-back meetings. You can look at my calendar and pull it open. That's that's part of the framework of movement work as well. I do not do back-to-back meetings. I don't schedule things on certain days. Like I really sit and strategize about how I am going to have this liberative concept flow into how I actually organize and work and collectively move. And so it has to look like a person who's leading the workshop, one of the trainers, when they're planning out their, um, workshop day, it can't look from 8 a.m. in the morning until 9 p.m. There's a schedule. We can't have, Paige, we can't, Did we can't. you
1: hear that? All my friends. Yeah. <laughs> did you hear that? My past self.
0: <laughs> we can't be sitting, um, in, in small conference rooms, with those huge post-it notes and writing out things and sitting in chairs for six hours straight. We got to get up and move our bodies. We got to go take a walk. We got to have yoga mats and pillows and blankets and have people sleep. And so part of um, the movement and the strategy is also um, being really clear and intentional about boundaries, setting healthy boundaries, setting um, boundaries that allow people to Um, innovate, to rest, to take time off, to um, be able to really think so that they're able to strategize from a more powerful and empowered way, as opposed from a exhausted and tired and disconnected way.
1: Word. Well, I know that you are going to offer us a practice, and I'm really excited about this one because... um, it's like a couple of years ago, someone first said the words to me: sleep hygiene. Yes. And I had never heard of that before, mm-hmm. and it was the first time I really thought about like sleep isn't just sleep, like, and rest isn't just rest. There's good deep rest, and there's like bad. There's like bad sleep, mm-hmm. you know, where you like wake up and you don't feel any better. Mm-hmm. So like, um, I'm excited about the practice you're gonna share. Can you just give people a little preview about what is for?
0: Yeah, I'm gonna be um doing how to prepare your spirit and body for a nap and how to really um, use the deprogramming tools that the IG page and that the nap ministry is really attempting to do to really um, go deeper into a connected practice that can be consistent.
1: Mm. That sounds awesome. So if you want to prepare yourself to take an amazing nap, um, you can listen to the practice episode, which is going to publish next week if you're listening to this right when it comes out. Um and just want to say thank you so much oh, for the work you're doing, Trisha. It's gorgeous. It's impacting so many
0: people. And it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I've had such a good time speaking with you. It's been amazing. Oh, thank you for I'm I, soon. I'm really happy that you people are resonating with the work and that you resonate with. It it means a lot.
1: Thank you so much to Trisha Hersey, the Nap Bishop, for sharing your wisdom with us. You are missing out if you're not already following the Nap Ministry on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the things. Uh, they're releasing beautiful memes every day that are great interruptions when you are stuck in a rut with the grind. Um, and also the practice that Trisha offers about taking the perfect nap— which we say in sort of like a, it's sort of like a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. Uh, it's not just for napping, and there's no such thing as a perfect nap. Whatever nap you take is perfect. <laughs> um, but the practice that Trisha is offering in the subsequent episode is really sweet. She sets us up with basic principles for um, good sleep and go- or good rest. So recommend that you check that out um, if you're listening right when this comes out. Every week we have a conversation and then the next week the, episode, uh, the practice episode releases. So you can see that then. Links are in the show notes to find our email list at healingjustice.org and our social media at Healing Justice. So stay in touch with us, talk to us there. We share some awesome stuff every day and we love hearing from you. This episode was edited by volunteer content editor Jacob White and mixed and produced by Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us and to sustaining yourself in that process. We need you. There is no strategy. There is no work. There is no change without you there. So come with us, rest, take care of yourself, and we'll hear you next week.